See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations on account of my name. At that time, many will fall away and deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Our Father, we are reminded this morning of the birth pangs that are yet to come that will be unleashed after the church is raptured. But we know before there can be labor, there must be pregnancy. And when we look at our world and we see the increased natural disasters, the hatred towards Israel, the hatred towards the body of Christ, the growing apostasy across our world, we are grateful that we need not despair, that you are sovereign, that you said these things must take place, and we are not to be afraid. We lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning in Afghanistan, many who are struggling just to get the funds out of banks that are closed, to buy food and necessities, many who are being searched out on their phones and through other vehicles to see if they confess Jesus. Put your hand over them today. Help them and their families. Thank you that we need not fear those who can kill the body only. But you told us to fear him, you, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We think this morning of our president. We ask that you would help him to lead our nation with wisdom. Help him in these challenging days to do what is right. And my, how sad we are for these families who have lost sons and fathers and be with them. Help them in the middle of their grief this morning as a whole new chapter in life is opened. Bring comfort, bring your people into their lives who might minister truth to them. We pray for our fellow Americans who are still trapped in that nation that you might be merciful Deliver them. You reminded us that when the Tower of Siloam fell or when Pilate executed people, whether it's a natural disaster or man-made, you told us that it happens to people not because they are more wicked than we are, but we live in a fallen world and that we all need to repent. Thank you that there is great joy in heaven over one sinner who finds repentance. We pray for our fellow Americans in the Gulf Coast this morning. We pray that you would protect life. Thank you that you are the author of life, that you care about life. 
beyond physical life, most importantly, eternal life. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. May we be ready to share it. So we lay ourselves before you this morning, wherever we may find ourselves, as we open your word, open our hearts, teach us from your word. Help me, fill me, and empower me, and bless tonight, meet the pastor, for people who might live stream, but pray, we pray especially that many will come, many who need to come, who need a church home, who need to settle some critical spiritual issues. May you be glorified this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 38. If you are with us for the first time, we just finished a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of James, and between books of the Bible, sometimes I do some special series that God has put on my heart. And we are doing a series on morality in a day where there seems to be little in America, where more Americans, like the people in Jeremiah's day, have lost their ability to blush. And so we began this series by studying the life of King David, where we looked at avoiding moral failure as we examined his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And then if you were here last time, we looked at finding moral forgiveness as we looked at the life of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And you can see today's message is reaping moral compromise. Because God is not mocked, whatever a man sows that he shall reap. Now sadly, in America, we have reached a crisis where the very fabric of our nation is coming coming unraveled. And of course, the church, which is supposed to build families, sadly, many times, is tearing down families. And when I say church, I recognize there's a difference between the true church and the apostate church, between the living body of Christ, those who are truly possessing the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and those who only profess Him, who have never been regenerated and born from above. There's the dead church, there's the live church. And so on the one hand, we have liberal Protestants who are endorsing the LGBTQ plus lifestyle because many of them are immoral heterosexuals. And immoral heterosexuality always leads to an endorsement of homosexuality. The Bible teaches that in a number of places that we'll be looking at in the weeks ahead. Apart from that, we have a worldwide problem of huge proportions of pedophile and homosexual priests in the Roman Catholic Church. And now evangelicals who are squishy on some critical issues because they're afraid they might turn some folks off and they don't want to lose membership. So we might expect compromise from the apostate church, but it should never happen in the evangelical church. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become saltless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing except to fill potholes that men may run over it. And so the history of the church, the history of humanity, has demonstrated that when people have a low view of sex, they have a low view of humanity. And the infanticide, the abortion, the euthanasia, the immorality, 
that is spreading across America is because we have a low view of human life. And are we surprised for when a nation suppresses the truth of God, God has revealed himself, his divine attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature is clearly seen through the creation around us. And when men suppress that truth, God gives them over to sensuality. And if they continue to suppress that truth, because heterosexual immorality always opens the door to homosexuality, God gives them over to homosexuality. And if they continue to suppress the truth, God gives them over to a depraved mind. And that is not only where our nation is, it's where our world is headed. And so when man becomes his own master and maker, he becomes his own God, he decides what's true, what's right, what's wrong. And really, the problem is, goes back to Darwin. Darwin, who taught that we evolved from animals. He heard the gospel, Charles Darwin. He pointedly rejected the gospel. And when men reject truth, they believe a lie. And that's what Darwin did. And so our children are being taught that we evolved from animals, so are we surprised that they would live like animals? And ultimately, it comes down to an issue of authority. Is this book true or not? Is this the infallible, inerrant Word of God or not? Look, it's the only book on the face of the planet that God inspired. There are no prophecies in the Quran. And thank God that most Muslims in the world do not believe their book, take it at face value, or the violence would be even worse. The Muslims that we see beheading believers, threatening the church this morning in Afghanistan, are people who take the Quran at face value that teaches them to slaughter Jews and Christians. A false god leads to wicked behavior. And so Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He said, men don't take their lamp and put it under a basket. They put it up high on a lampstand so that everyone in the house can benefit from its light. So he said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And so we have more and more in the evangelical church who are again afraid to stand up against the culture. And they say, well, it's not that important whether or not Adam and Eve were real people. It's not that important whether or not there was a literal, actual flood that encompassed the whole world. It's not that important if you want to believe theistic evolution, as some so-called Christian apologists tell us. It's okay. It doesn't matter. But it does matter because these so-called pastors and apologists who reject biblical history ended up opening the door to sexual immorality. They jettison biblical morality whenever you jettison biblical history. And so there are books being used in evangelical churches all across America this morning, sold in bookstores that deny these basic truths. And so this morning is we look at our text of Scripture. It's a sobering passage. But it's a helpful passage because God has called us to be different. We are to be a different kind of people, and it's our distinctiveness from the world that gives us authority and an open door potentially with the world.
Now, I'm not going to read our whole passage this morning, but I want to start by reading a portion of it so you know where we are headed this morning. Genesis chapter 38, follow along, beginning now in verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. And she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah, or Shelah, if you prefer, had grown up. And she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who is by the road of Enam? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of that place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Now, let me set the context. Most of you know that Genesis divides into two parts, Genesis 1 through 11, where it deals with the creation, the fall, the flood, and the table of nations. And then chapters 12 through 50 that highlight four key people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. When you come to chapters 37 through 50, it's a biography on the life of Joseph. It comprises 25% of the book of Genesis. And yet there's this brief interlude in Joseph's biography here in the 38th chapter. And the careful reader would naturally ask, why would God interrupt this biography on Joseph's life to bring up this event that apparently seems to have nothing to do with Joseph? Well, critics who deny Mosaic authorship say a later writer just inserted this. Well, that's not true. That's arrogance. That's 
unnecessary. It's a denial of the infallibility of Scripture that the Spirit of God put the Bible together. And God in His sovereignty, as He says in the Bible, protected His Word. I think uh, there's a couple of reasons why this is included. First, God wants to teach us something about character. You see, for a person to have an impact in a corrupt society, he or she must be a person of character. And it is your convictions that determine your decisions. And when you make enough right decisions, it will shape your character. And it is your character that allows you, if it's godly character, to have an influence in a dark culture. And so chapters 38 and 39, you find two brothers put side by side, two men raised in the same family with different convictions. In chapter 38, we find Judah with his grim and sordid life. In chapter 39, we find Joseph with a godly life, and they both end up bearing very different kind of fruit. So at first glance, while this seems like it's an interruption in the life of Joseph, it's not at all. It's, among other things, giving us a reason why Joseph is sold into slavery that he's already introduced us to, why God is ultimately going to bring all the Jewish people down to Egypt for 400 years, just as He prophesied to Abraham, because they are living in a godless culture, and you can begin to see already how the family is being shaped by the Canaanites around them. So God is going to bring the nation down into Egypt to preserve the nation, to protect the nation, to shape the nation for the purposes that He has. So this is no interruption at all. And secondly, it is, as we'll see this morning, to teach us something about the grace of God, that in the midst of failure, God can intervene with His grace. Now, with that backdrop, let's plunge into the details. There's an outline and your bulletin. If you're new, if you're online, you can print it out. I want you to notice first Judah and his sons. Judah and his sons. The chapter opens... Moses beginning to unfold for us. Moses, of course, the author of the Torah, the first five books, Pentateuchos, uh, the five books of the law, the Pentateuch, and it begins by underscoring uh, Judah's wayward behavior, Judah's wayward behavior. Look, if you will, now at verse 1 in your Bibles, Genesis 38, verse 1. And it came about at that time Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So he heads to this city called Adullam. Here's a map to give you some perspective where we are. You'll see the Dead Sea on the right side, and just north of and west of the Dead Sea is a little town called Bethlehem. The Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and that's where Jesus was born. And if you could see it on the map and you could go six miles further north, you would see the city of Jerusalem. Well, southwest of Jerusalem and west of Bethlehem is this little place called Adullam. Now, he goes there, and he meets this Adullamite by the name of Hira. And Hira will turn up three times in this chapter, and he'll become a critical influence in the life of Judah towards a wicked, evil kind of lifestyle. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Don't think that somehow godless people, whether it's in behavior or doctrine, the latter in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, will not influence you. 
Bad company always corrupts good morals. And so Hira, who starts out as an acquaintance, becomes an associate, and in the end, he becomes an accomplice in Judah's sin. And let me just say parenthetically, that is usually the way it is when a person's life is not right with the Lord. If your life is not right with the Lord, if God is not filling and satisfying your heart, you're going to find that satisfaction elsewhere. Put out in the margin, would you, Jeremiah 2 and verse 5, Jeremiah 2, 5, there the prophet says, they went far from me, God is speaking, they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. (laughs) That's what happens. You walk after emptiness because that's all the world offers, and in the end, you become empty. And so if God is not filling your heart, you'll come up empty. And so it's critically important that you never stop cultivating your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, believers, are the temple of the living God, just as God said, and he quotes the prophet Jeremiah, the new covenant, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he goes on and he quotes Ezekiel and Isaiah, therefore God says, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God, when he redeems us from sin, calls us to come out and to be separate from their myths. And the tendency of believers, even to this day, is one of two extremes. You either isolate yourself from lost people or you insulate yourself from lost people. And both are out of balance. Christ's enemies said, oh, he's a friend of the tax collectors. And so Christians, on the one hand, are not to be bound together with unbelievers. We're not to be like them because if we're bound with them, if you spend 99% of your time with pagans as your friend and 1% of your time with believers, I can tell you who's going to have the greatest influence in your life. And so we need the balance, the perfect balance that the Lord Jesus modeled, contact without contamination. So on the one hand, the writer of the Hebrews says he was innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. On the other hand, Luke will call him a friend of sinners. So Judah went to the wrong end of the spectrum. He was bound together with an unbeliever by the name of Hiram. So that's Judah's wayward behavior. Secondly, I want you to think for a moment about Judah's worldly bride, his worldly bride. So while kindling this relationship with this lost man, he steps out further from the will of God by marrying a lost woman. Look, if you will, now at verse 2. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, the dad's name was Shua, and he took her, meaning he married her, as some translations render it, and went into her. Now, Judah, in many ways, is an Old Testament illustration of the prodigal son. He leaves his home He leaves the covenant people. He goes to, quote-unquote, a distant country. 
He goes into the heart of Canaanite paganism and, uh, in this city called Adullam. And if you know the rest of uh, Genesis, it's a sad record of what happens to this man. But God in His mercy, before He is done, is going to fix things. But He goes and He meets this Canaanite woman. To be a Canaanite was to be an idolater. It was to be involved in the worst, most heinous sins you can consider. It was, in essence, a raw pagan, a pagan of pagans. And she is called the daughter of a man by the name of Shua. Shua is a Hebrew word that means riches. And so Hebrew people usually just don't indiscriminately pull a name. They pull it with a purpose, especially in Old Testament times. And so obviously, Shua is from a rich family, and so his daddy named him Riches. And so he sees his family, they're wealthy, they're well off. He sees this woman, he took her, that he married her, and he went into her. So the emphasis clearly is not on the spiritual, but on the physical, because that's what's driving her. He saw her. She's from a rich family. He marries her. Some translations say he sleeps with her. That's the nuance of he went into her. And it's a sad day from there on. Now, if only he had heeded the counsel that Abraham, his grandfather, had given to Isaac. If he had only heeded the counsel that Isaac uh, had given to uh, Jacob. His great-grandfather Abraham had given specific counsel to Isaac, and his grandfather Isaac had given specific counsel to Jacob as to how you get married. Listen to these words of Abraham in Genesis 24. He gets his servant, and he charges him. And we read, please place your hand under my thigh. It's a rather picturesque view. It's where children come from. And of course, this is important to a Jewish person because a circumcised man was someone who is committed to the covenant. And the place under the thigh is where life comes from, and they were to raise a godly heritage. You don't marry pagans. You marry believers. Place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives who acknowledge the one true God of Israel and take a wife for my son Isaac. Likewise, Isaac gives this instruction to Jacob. Listen to these words from Genesis 28. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Listen, if Judah had been walking with God, he never would have built a close relationship with an idolatrous Canaanite man such that he would marry a pagan Canaanite woman. But remember, here's a guy who was driven by fleshly things. He was the one who saw a profit in selling Joseph to the Midianites for money. And so he has a hardened conscience he leaves the place where his brothers are living. He adopts a pagan friend. He becomes a business associate. And then verse 2 says he sees a certain Canaanite woman. He marries her. And together they have three children. Look, if you will, now verse 3 of our chapter. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Judah named him Er, which means literally in Hebrew, the watcher. 
And indeed, this little boy grew up in a home where he had a lot to watch. He watched his father and mother and everything that they did. And obviously, Ur saw his Canaanite mother, who was indifferent to the invisible God that Jacob worshipped, a woman who was involved in idolatry and licentiousness, and he ended up being influenced by her. Verse 4, then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. If you're using the ESV and some other translations, it says, she conceived again and bore a son, and she, they had the word she named him Onan, because in the Hebrew text, the pronoun is shared. So in this case, unlike with Ur, where Judah names him, the mother names him Onan. Now, the name Onan means strength. And of course, um, traditionally, to this day, Jewish fathers name their sons. I was talking to my friend not long ago who lives in Jerusalem, and he was flying to Chicago because his grandson was soon to be born, and as a rabbi, he was going to circumcise him on the eighth day. And it is, of course, on the eighth day that the father, to this day, at least amongst observant Jews, will name the son. But in this case, the dad, Judah, is not naming the son. The mother is, because this man is usurping his responsibility to his pagan wife. And as we'll see in a moment, the name, strength, Onan, fits the boy because he has strength not to do what's good, but to do what is evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 5, she bore still another son and named, or again, she named, it's shared again in the Hebrew text, and she named him Shelah, meaning he that breaks. And it was at Chezeb that she bore him. So Judah's unnamed Canaanite wife, all we know is that she's the daughter of this Canaanite man, um, she names him Shelah. And again, it's an indication that he is furthering, surrendering his headship and leadership in the family. Now listen then, wherever you are in the world, you are called to lead your family. You're a dad, the family shepherd. That doesn't make you better than your wife. You desperately need your wife. She's your helpmate. But you can't have two heads. To have two heads is to be a monster. And if, you usur if your wife usurps your leadership by you're abdicating your responsibility, you have created disaster in your home, and typically you will feminize your children. I was speaking to a man this week. He said, well, you know, I don't know if my wife wants to join Community Bible Church. I said, well, what's your thought? Well, I love the church. I feel like it's a place where we can really grow, but my wife's not so sure she likes the church. I said, lead, man, lead. Be a man. Get with it. Get on the program. Tell your wife I'm going to go and I'm going to join and I need you to support me in this decision. But he is abdicating his leadership. That's Judah's wayward behavior. That leads to his worldly bride, and so it's not surprising that we see the fruit of it in Judah's wicked boys. Judah's wicked boys. Look, if you will, now at verse 6. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, we're not told specifically what the problem was with Judah's firstborn heir, except to know that he did evil, or some translations say 
he did wickedly in the sight of the Lord. You ask, how wicked or how evil was he? Well, it warrants a response from God Almighty in verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Put out on the margin next to that verse, or circle it in the marginal note if you have marginal notes, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. The chronicler obviously read the law. It was important to him to read Moses. In 1 Chronicles 2, 3, the chronicler says, Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he, the Lord, put him to death. And that's what we read here. He was evil in the sight of the Lord, so Yahweh took his life. You know, there are people in our world today who just think they can flirt and flirt and flirt with sin and that there'll be no consequence, that they can somehow, when they're ready, get right with God. And they forget that it is the Lord who gives and it is the Lord who takes. That payday will eventually come, and it came on this boy named Ur. So suddenly, Tamar is without a husband. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. The family's future was in jeopardy. And so according to the custom of the day, Onan was to marry his brother's wife. And the first boy, in order to protect the family name, would follow Ur, and it was also to provide ultimately for needs that would be in the family, especially if there was a a, a lady who maybe had several children, and all of a sudden, she's without a husband. Now, I'm not going to go into live right marriage this morning, live there is from the Latin. We have a lot of terms we use in the church today that come from the Latin Bible. The word laver means brother-in-law or, or husband's brother. But if you want to study it, I did a whole sermon, a whole series on the book of Ruth, and I covered in great detail. About 400 years later, when Moses comes on the scene in Deuteronomy chapter 25, he's going to codify the procedure for leveret marriage. But in this culture, because the heir was so important to care for the parents in old age and to secure uh, a heritage, and of course, we're dealing here with the Jewish people from whom God is going to bring the Savior of the world, they practice it. And so this unmarried brother, or sometimes the closest relative, like in the case of Ruth and, and Boaz, would marry the woman. And the nearest relative, in this case, it's obvious, And then after they had that child, the others would be his children, so to speak. All right, let's keep reading. Onan agrees, but he agrees under false pretenses. Verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now remember, according to Deuteronomy 25, you might want to go home and read that. The firstborn son would actually take the deceased brother's name. The offspring would not be his, Moses records, and rightly so. But Onan, he wants sexual pleasure without responsibility. That's our culture. And so he spills his seed. Now, by the way, our Roman Catholic friends use this verse, this is their headquarters verse, to say that all birth control is wrong. Now, let me say parenthetically, certainly some birth control is absolutely evil because there are some forms of birth control that create an abortion 
after a baby is conceived. But with that said, this particular text of Scripture has nothing to do with birth control or with onanism. It has everything to do with your willingness as a married person to have children and to raise up a godly heritage. And sadly, we live in a day when we have more and more Christian people who refuse the command that God gave in Genesis initially to Adam and Eve again after the great flood and all the way through Scripture that His people are to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I have no doubt that God put this in the Bible with a specific intent that we might see the sin of preventing a conception, among other things. Now, we live in a day where the Christian culture more and more is shaped by the world around us instead of by the Word of God. And we don't really see children the way God sees children. I have a sermon on Malachi 2, where in Malachi 2.16, I, the Lord God of Israel, hate divorce. Why does he hate divorce? Among other reasons, because what it does to children. And children are important to God, and we see more and more of these children being abused, even in our government school system, where they're being taught as seven and eight-year-olds, maybe you, a boy, are really a girl. That's child abuse beyond imagination. We've witnessed this week of these Taliban people taking little 12-year-old girls and raping them and, and making them brides. That's wicked. That is evil. And God says in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, the Bible never envisions a couple choosing not to have children. There's an assumption that you will see children the way God sees them, as a blessing, as gifts, as a reward from Him. And to choose not to have children is a form of rebellion. The Bible speaks of the fruit of the womb as a heritage. He describes it like olive plants, which would be a beautiful, descriptive blessing in the mind of a Hebrew reading the text as a reward from him. But our culture says they're burdens, they're belongings. They hinder you from the kind of lifestyle that you want to live. And those who reject children like Onan, who want the, the joys of intimacy without the responsibility of fathering a child, are deep in sin. Now, let me say, I know there are couples who cannot have children. I get that. But nowhere in Scripture is there any indication that we can control without seeking the living God whether to have children or the size of the family that God might give us. And certainly in cases of infertility, adoption might be an option for some. Now look, I've got enough mail over the years to know that when I speak on this sensitive subject, some people are going to get angry with me. But quite honestly, if a man of God cannot stand in the pulpit of God and open the Word of God and teach you what he says, where are you going to get what you think? 
It needs to come from Scripture. And if you've been here long enough, you know that I'm called not to selectively preach the Scripture, not to avoid difficult subjects. I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God. And quite honestly, I don't really care what you think, but I do care what God thinks. Because someday as a pastor, I'm going to stand face to face to my Savior at the judgment of the just and give an account of how I handled this book. Listen to what Paul said, however, in 1 Corinthians 7, because based on 1 Corinthians 7, the Scripture teaches by mutual agreement, there can be a time for abstinence from intimacy. Listen to these words. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then God said through the Apostle Paul, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So for a set period of time, agreed upon by both husband and wife, and for the purpose of prayer, not for habitually coming apart, but for a set period of time, a couple can come apart for what reasons? Sometimes health reasons. Sometimes there are times in a woman's life where that's necessary. Sometimes there are some critical living arrangements or issues of can we, can we take on another one? And so you seek the living God in prayer, and for a period of time, you come apart, and if you want to let God overrule, then He can. But you see, we tend to build our theology from the world around us instead of having a renewed mind. And, and we think, well, you know, Pastor, if you teach what you teach, that God really wants to bless us with children, we're going to have an army. Well, look, if God gives you 15 or 20 children, you're a blessed man. I grew up in a home in the 60s where there was no such thing as birth control. Of course, it doesn't enter into the United States until the 1960s, but in the church we were raised in, Roman Catholics were determined not to use birth control. And the families didn't, and they would march in on Sunday morning. The largest family was Dr. Fasello's family. He had 12 children. But most families had three or four. Some had five. My dad had eight, actually technically nine. My mother lost her last in a miscarriage. But I'm glad they didn't quit at four because I'm number five. <laughs> you see, we think we're going to have this army. Well, so what? You know who's having an army of children? Do you know that 70% of the people in Afghanistan this morning are under the age of 25. And by the way, that's true of most of the Muslim countries. And the rate America is going, in another 18 years, there'll be 50 million Muslims in America. Why? Because many, and we shouldn't hate Muslims, we should seek to win these people to Christ. But believers who have the truth are not raising a godly heritage as they should now, we understand that through natural means, breastfeeding sometimes, ovulation can be slowed down or ill health, emotional stress, or just coming apart for a period of time for prayer. But eventually, 
Give it to the living God. Let him. You'll have no regrets when you step into eternity. You're not going to take anything with you, but hopefully your children because they've met Jesus as their personal Savior. Now, let me say parenthetically while we're on the subject, none of us need to meddle in someone else's life. We don't need to be their judge like, well, why do you have only two? It's none of your business. We won't judge one another. We will, look, there are things I know that go on and because I hear it in a pastor's office that most people have no idea about. So be careful here, but I don't want you to miss God's best because you're selfish or deliberately disobedient without giving God a chance to overrule. Now, it's another sermon in itself, but neither, if you've heard me on the Bible line, do I endorse forcing conception through surrogate mothers, through frozen embryos being implanted, through conception outside of the womb. That's a sermon in itself, and I have stuff online if you want to hear it. All life is sacred. But again, we need to let God rule in life. And look, even if life comes through illegitimate means, even if a woman is raped, people ask me like, this is some deal. What if your daughter was raped? It would be awful. Would you tell her to get an abortion? Of course I never would. All life is sacred. I used to love as a new believer listening to Ethel Waters stand up and sing at those Billy Graham crusades. His life is on the sparrow and I know he watches me because she was the product of a rape. And so we are to let our minds be renewed with Scripture and to present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. And God puts this little piece in here about Onan because he doesn't want people to have pleasure without responsibility. And so look further now in verse 10. What he did, verse 10 says, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Now that's Judah and his sons. Beginning now in verse 11, we have Judah and his sins. And I hope you understand that this man Judah is simply reaping what he has sown. I don't know precisely what he preached to his family, but I do know that he was a terrible example to his children. First, consider Judah's perverted values. Judah's perverted values. Now remember, two of his sons are dead, and there's only one son, Shelah, who's left. And by liveret marriage, she's next in line uh, for, uh, he's next in line to marry Tamar. Now, how would you like to be in Sheila's shoes? <laughs> His first two brothers are dead, and now it's your turn to marry. Well, verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. He is really driven more by superstition than he is by truth. There's a reason these boys are dead. They're dead because they fell under the judgment of God Almighty. But do you see what he's thinking and how his thinking is influencing his doing? Because as a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. He's blaming Tamar. He's saying, the reason I've got two dead sons, man, is because of you. And he's thinking inwardly, if I let her marry this third son, then he's going to die as well. And that's unfair, it's unjust, and it is not true. 
The reason these boys died had nothing to do with Tamar. It's because what they did was, is the text is displeasing, evil in the sight of the Lord. If he ought to be blaming anyone, he ought to be blaming himself. His decision to move from the area where the covenant people were to this place called Adula was a mistake. And then to become close friends with a pagan, and then to marry a pagan Canaanite woman who ended up leading the family who became an example of godlessness to her sons. Now, beyond his perverted values, think for a moment about Judah's personal vileness, his personal vileness. Some years pass, and we are told here in verse 12, now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, Judah's wife, whose name is never given, but simply identified as the daughter of this Canaanite man named Shudah, his wife now dies. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hera, the Adulamite. So instead of finding comfort in the midst of grief, he fills this void by getting his unsaved friend, Hera, the Adulamite, and they want to go up to this place called Timnah. Now, this was in the spring of the year. This is the time when you would shear sheep. Here's a picture of Timnah. Now, this one, unfortunately, was taken in the dead of summer. If we were there in March, which we don't usually go to Israel in March because it rains a lot, everything would be green and beautiful. But when the hot sun comes, everything turns brown. So this is a picture of Timnah, and here's the valley below. Uh, some of you on one of our trips, we went to this very spot. That's known as uh, Solomon's Copper Mines. The Scripture speaks about Solomon's copper mines. This is the actual mines where Solomon would mine the copper for the temple and for other things. And 1 Samuel 25 indicates that when they shared the sheep, it was really a time of celebration, a time of God's blessing. But if you're a pagan, you're going to celebrate in a very different way. Look, the way a pagan celebrates Christmas, he invites the family over, they get high, they get buzzed, they drink a lot of wine. The way a godly family celebrates Christmas is very different. Christ is in the center. And so this is a time to remember God's blessing. But for this man, he is going to do something very evil. And so notice Tamar, he is not giving his son to her and live right marriage, so she's going to take it into her own hands. Verse 13, and it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given him to him as a wife. So she disguises herself as a temple prostitute. By the way, the Canaanites would mix acts of immorality into their worship service. And that's true in many pagan religions today. I mean, these Muslims who say, I'm going to blow myself up because I'm going to get 72 virgins. This is wicked stuff. This is beyond wicked. This is the evil one giving them these thoughts, and it's recorded right in the Quran. Yes, it is an evil, wicked, violent religion. It's not true. It's false. It's wrong. 
And there are cults today that mix sexual immorality with so-called worship. So she knew her father-in-law well enough to know that here was a sensual guy. He could be a candidate for my services. So she tries to trick him. And of course, we read here in verse 15, not knowing who she was, she's propositioned. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. The veil was a customary device that a prostitute would use, not for modesty as some women do in the Bible, but to seduce a man. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? Now, that was the price of her services. But she wants to frame the man. She wants some security in lieu of the fact that he is going to delay payment. He offers her a young goat. He doesn't have it with her, so I I want some guarantee. I want a pledge. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, verse 18, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So he indulges himself. He gets up and leaves, minus his ring. His ring was, it was like they would put it on typically a cord around your neck, or you could wear it on your finger. And the signet you would use in business transactions, you would put it into wax. They have found some ancient signets. It's like a fingerprint. No question who it belongs to. He leaves his signet. He leaves the cord that would be around his neck. And he leaves his staff where they would indeed carve identifying marks. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So he wants to make payment. He especially wants his ring back and his staff. Verse 31, his friend goes, he asks the man of, he asks the man of her place saying, where is the temple prostitute who is by the road of Enam? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Uh, the Hebrew text literally says, he asked, where is the Kadeshah, that is the sacred prostitute? And here was this woman who, like a typical Canaanite would do as an act of worship to the Canaanite goddess of love, she would give herself. There's no such woman here. I don't know what you're talking about. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, you know, I'm a man of integrity. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. The only thing he is concerned about is how people perceive him. Not that he had sinned against the living God. But ultimately, your sins will find you out. You will reap what you sow. For God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. So he's ignited this time bomb, which brings us thirdly to Judah's pretended virtue. Judah's pretended virtue. 
Three months come and go, and I'm sure by this time the incident is far from his mind. Why? Because he has a calloused and sensitive conscience. We're told in verse 24, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. This, in his mind, will conveniently solve the problem because he had put off for years giving his younger son in live right marriage. Bring her out. Bring that wretch out. We're going to burn her. It's pretty hard to find a greater hypocrite than this guy in Scripture. I mean, you talk about a double standard. Like so many people, he's quick to judge somebody else without judging himself. You should put out in the margin next to this verse, Romans 2, 1 and 2. I have a whole sermon just on those two verses, Romans 2, 1 and 2. You see, the only difference between him and Tamar is that he had been caught. Or she had been caught and he had not. So he's thinking, where is that immoral woman? We're going to burn her. That's what people do who are typically caught up in a sin. They are hard on people who are guilty of the same sin. So a liar is hard on people who lie. An immoral person is hard on someone who's immoral. A gossip will always be harder on the person who's a gossip. And so as the executioners hurry off to get Tamar, we read in verse 25, it was while she was being brought out. Maybe she said, hold it, wait a minute. I want to incriminate my partner who was involved with me. Oh, this will be interesting. All the rubberneckers, they want to find out who it is. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cord and staff are these. She had reason to believe that for all of Judah's problems, he would withhold his so-called justice, especially if the same justice needed to be brought down on his head. Verse 26, Judah recognized them. His sin had found him out. He recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. Judah knew he had been tried and found wanting. He knew he was guilty. He knew he had been caught with his hand in the bag, so to speak. He knew that she was more righteous than he was because he was doubly guilty of both adultery and his refusal to give his son Shelah in marriage. And none of this ever would have happened if he had just obeyed God. Now, that brings us finally to Judah and his seed. Judah and his seed. Now, as you read the closing paragraph, you might think it's rather obscure and really not all that important, but it's critically important. First, when we think about Judah's offspring or his seed, Judah's seed pictures God's realism. Judah's seed pictures God's realism. We read now in verse 27, it came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. As it turns out, instead of bearing one son, she's going to have twins. God had taken away two of Judah's sons, 
But now in his sovereignty, he's going to give two sons back to continue the line and tribe of Judah. Messiah is promised to come from the tribe of Judah. And if they end up being wiped out, how can it happen? The line of Judah is going, as you read in the New Testament, to come through Tamar. She's really just an expression of how real and powerful and involved God is in the lives of his people. Now, he doesn't know it yet because it's not until his father, Jacob, is there on his bedside and he brings in all the son and gives each of them a blessing. He doesn't know that of the 12 tribes, God is going to choose him and his tribe. By the way, this guy comes around, he repents, and he gets his life right. God is going to choose his tribe to bring the promised Messiah from. Listen to these words from Genesis 49 in verse 10. There we read, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, that's a title for the Messiah, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh the Messiah will come in one aspect of his reign at his second coming, is he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. We look at the mess our world is in. I'm telling you, Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to fix it, and he's going to remove every unbeliever off the planet, and only those who have been born again will enter the kingdom of God. Now, some will enter in their natural bodies, and they'll have children and children and children and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and their children will have to make decisions for Christ, just like your children need to. My children are not Christians because I am. God has children, and he has no grandchildren. But a day is coming when Messiah will rule and this world will see what God originally intended before sin entered into the world. God is so alive. He's so real. He knows Er is gone. He knows that Onan is gone. And all that's left is Sheila. And Sheila is not a suitable candidate to, be, to bring offspring for the Messiah's line. Do you know how real God is? I love Hebrews 11 and verse 6. It says, And without faith is it impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Not that he exists. Contextually, that he is able, that he is alive, that he can perform. God is not talking about, oh, you know, I hear these testimonies. Well, you know, I said one day, if there's a God upstairs or if there's really a God, I'll give my life to Christ. That's not conversion. That's a mockery to God. That's not when a man is converted. God devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. All men know there is a God. Contextually, he must believe that he is, that he's alive, that he is able to do what he said, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God knows what he is about. And he knows who needs to be in the, in the line to bring the Messiah into this world. God is faithful when we are faithless, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. He cannot deny himself. And that sometimes he will bring blessings in spite of us. And sometimes he will bring wrath because of us. He cannot deny who he is. He is a God of justice and love and grace, but he is also a God of wrath. Now that brings us 
to Judah's seed picturing God's redemption. Judah's seed picturing God's redemption. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he promised a great nation to come through Abraham's loins and ultimately through the tribe of Judah. And so we read now in verse 28, moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. So the first child would be the firstborn and the firstborn as they were already practicing it, Moses is going to codify it, would be redeemed, redeemed for the Lord. And so they want to make sure, since there's twins here, he's the firstborn, she puts a scarlet thread around his hand. But he pulls back in. And by the way, the scarlet thread becomes a symbol of salvation in Scripture. Remember, for instance, Rahab, who tied a scarlet thread outside the windows so that when Israel came in to conquer Jericho, that her and her family might be protected because of her faith in the living God. And it becomes a symbol that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so he pictures, Judah's seed pictures the God of redemption, who would ultimately, not through a payment like the Jew would do for the firstborn, but by literally, sacrificially giving his own son's blood as a payment to redeem us. But also Judah's seed pictures God's royalty. Judah's seed, point C there on your outline, it pictures God's royalty. We're told now, beginning in verse 28 again, let me just read it again. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she named him Perez. Perez is a Hebrew word that means breaking through. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. That's from a Hebrew word that means to rise or to shine. And, and the scarlet cord, of course, is bright. It's, it's reminiscent of sunshine. The midwife had never seen anything like this before. She thought she had the firstborn fig figured out. He pulls himself back, and out comes Perez. He drew his hand back, and then this twin comes. And there's an idiom here in Hebrew. It literally means you have breached a breach for yourself. I mean, he just blew her. Look, look how this guy came through. It's absolutely amazing. So it's Perez breaking through. You say, why is this important? What does this have to do with royalty? Everything. Because remember, God narrows the focus through Abraham, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Great. Isaac, he is the son of promise. Fantastic. Out of the 12 sons, Jacob is the son of promise. Fantastic. Out of the 12 sons, Judah is the tribe from whom the Messiah will come. And so when you come into the New Testament, it's not by accident that God gives the genealogy of the Messiah. And we read these words in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. But then he goes on and he reminds us, Perez fathered Hezron. Why? Because he was the firstborn. He needed to be the one from whom the Messiah would come. And you read all the way through that genealogy and you come down to verse 16. 
And you have Joseph's daddy, who is also named Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, because he was virgin born, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. It's amazing that through the physical descent of Judah and Tamar, through Perez, will come the Savior of the world. Now, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? Let me give you three timeless lessons that kind of picked at my heart this week. Number one, a father's disobedience can have a huge effect on the life of his children. If you don't get anything else, get this. Now, if you carefully do the mathematics of Genesis, you will discover that Judah's dad, Jacob, moved uh, his family to a place called Shechem. God had wanted him to go all the way into the land of promise, but he gets to Shechem and he stops. Why? Because he's out of fellowship with the Lord. You can read all about it in Genesis. And in Shechem, he is living a compromised lifestyle. God has to break him. How long is he in Shechem? He's there for 10 years. And it had an awful influence on his family. While in Shechem, Dinah starts hanging around with the wrong crowd. And what happens? She's date raped. Simeon and Levi, they are involved in a mass murder. And then all the sons are involved in mass looting. Reuben, if you remember, he committed incest with his stepmother. Then all of the brothers, all of them agreed together to, to sell Joseph as a slave. The only sons who don't give Jacob trouble are Joseph and Benjamin. Why is that? Because when they come along, Jacob's heart is right with the Lord. And as they're growing up in the home, he is able to raise them in the manner that he should have raised the other sons. It's not by accident. Now, Judah is responsible for his own sin. He made some choices. When he decides to move to Adullam, maybe he says, I don't want the boring lifestyle around here. I want some action. And over there in Adullam, man, there's a lot of women and those guys celebrate and they have a great time. That's where we want to go. And it's a huge mistake. He loses two of his sons while he's there. Now, remember, the Old Testament, the New Testament says it's written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God didn't write this just for the Jewish people. He wrote it for us living here in the 21st century. And this passage should be a warning to dads that you are to be a spiritual leader in your home. And if you get out of fellowship with God and you stay out of fellowship with God long enough, it can have disastrous consequences on your home. Look, you're the head of the home. You're the protective covenant covering. And when you step out of that leadership role, you are basically inviting the evil one, especially in the day that we live in. You're inviting evil right into the front door. And if you don't learn anything else from this man... Please learn that sooner or later, if you step out of fellowship, you will reap the consequences. And guys, they think it's no, you know, so I like my porn. What's wrong with that, pastor? So I like my booze. We like to go out and have three or four beers. Trying to convince someone recently how evil that was, how, how, how wrong that was to use strong drink. And you've got all these pastors in America who go out and have a beer with you. 
and they're just ignorant. And they think, I'm ignorant. No, they are ignorant. They don't know what the Scripture teaches about strong drink. Not only against drunkenness, but strong drink. And you live with these compromised decisions in the heart. And after a while, you go far enough, you will see the fruit of it in your children. Secondly, One sin inevitably leads to another, and at last, most sins indeed are found out. So Judah, on his way to the sheep-sharing festival, going to this party of sorts, he turns aside and meets a prostitute. Why why would Tamar be so ready? Because she knew this guy. This obviously was not his first rodeo. He, she knew this guy. She knew that he would be susceptible. He never dreamed of being involved in incest with his daughter-in-law. You know, and sometimes we're shocked when we hear what a Christian has done, especially a pastor. Look, as I told a man yesterday that I was counseling, you know, most marriages don't suffer from a blowout, they suffer from a slow leak. It's just a long, gradual process. Just little areas of compromise. The wages of sin typically is more sin. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. And if you think that this could never happen to you, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, a verse we've been examining in these last two messages. And if you compromise before long, it's like you just get sucked down into a swirling vortex of sin where things get worse and worse and worse. Third, God's holiness requires that He discipline His people and that He judge the lost. God's holiness requires that He disciplines His people and that He judges the lost. We live in a day where it's common to sacrifice God's holiness on the altar of grace. And we meet these Christians who say, well, you know, we're under grace. We have freedom in Christ. You have freedom to live holy, as I do. Not to live a double life. And if you really know the Lord, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap real life. Now, you read a text like this, and you say, well, why did God strike down Ur and Onan and not take out Judah and Tamar? Because he is a sovereign God, and he has sovereign purposes, and he saw where this couple was ultimately heading. He will discipline and he will judge. You say, well, the judgment is way out there. No, it's already happened. If you don't know Christ is your Savior, it's already happened. Written across your forehead is guilty. For the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He who does not believe in him, he goes on to say, is condemned already. You're already guilty, all of us by nature. We are children of wrath, Paul will say in Ephesians 2. 
And if you're here and you're uncertain about your salvation, you should settle it before the day is over. And if you're live streaming in some part of the world, tune in tonight at 5.30. Get this settled. And if you're here on one of these campuses, come here tonight at 5.30. You're in grays, you should drive over. It's not that far. Get it settled. And if you've settled it, and as I've been preaching and the Spirit of God has been speaking to your heart and you know there are areas of compromise, what are you going to do about it? Oh, I'm just, you know, everything's okay, Pastor. Look, you set a railroad track and you put it off one degree, you go a mile, there's virtually no difference. But you go a couple thousand miles and you're way off track. The longer you are just a little bit off-center in your relationship with the Lord, you go far enough, and you will suffer consequences that you wish you never had. Now, Holy Father, you warned us that sometimes our sin can be visited up to the third and fourth generation of those who hate you. You're our holy God. You judge sin. You discipline the saints. You admonished us to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. So help someone today to do that. Help them to know that they cannot pay for their own sin through human effort, through works, through membership, through baptism. But you have made a payment with the precious, sinless blood of your son on a cross. And thank you that because he died for us instead of us and you raised him from the dead, demonstrating his sinlessness and his ability to pay, that you promise that whoever will call on him in faith will instantly and eternally be saved. Thank you that when you save us, you don't leave us as orphans. You send the Spirit of God to come in us to be our helper. So help us to respond to his leadership is found here in the Holy Scripture. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.